it's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terrence McCauley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. My guest today is Adam Mitzner. He is an acclaimed Amazon best-selling author of the Broden Legal Series. He is a full-time practicing attorney, and his latest novel, Love, Betrayal, Murder, is available from Blackstone Publishing. Adam, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Great to be here. Great. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your latest, Love, Betrayal, Murder? Well, Love, Betrayal, Murder is my 10th novel. Most of my books are legal thrillers, and this one is too. It involves an office romance between Matt Brooks and Vanessa Lyons, who are both lawyers in a major New York City law firm. Mm -hmm. And as the title reveals, there's love, betrayal, and ultimately murder. Imagine that. (laughs) Yes. um, (laughs) um, my, um, My family always says, why is there always a betrayal and a murder? And I say, because that's what makes interesting reading. Exactly right. Exactly right. That's why people love true crime uh, stuff. And it's why they still buy thrillers and mysteries, isn't it? Yes. So what, what, uh, what are some of the uh, story angles that you approach in, in this latest book of yours? Well, there are a bunch of them. I think the key overarching um, concept is the way we deal with truth. And mm-hmm. that obviously has great implications in a legal setting because you're sworn to tell the truth under penalty of perjury. Mm-hmm. But I think it also has really interesting implications in people's lives and their relationships. And so one of the things that the book does is it explores this concept of truth in different arenas. So there's the truth between the lovers, um, there's the truth between spouses, there's the truth that you have with your lawyer, there's Mm -hmm. the truth you have with your employer, and then there's the truth that you have when you testify at a trial. And though it's one truth, right, there's a a bright line between a lie and the truth, I think how people approach that depends on their circumstances and the setting. Exactly right. Yeah. And that's what makes for a very interesting story, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's really the the crux of of all storytelling is honesty. And, you know, how honest are you as a person? How honest are your characters? And on top of that, what's the justification that they provide when they're being dishonest? Because I think, you know, dishonesty, just because it moves the plot, or someone doing something that's horrible, like committing a murder, just because mm-hmm. it moves the plot, is a cheat. It's gotta be something that fits into that person's worldview that justifies them taking the action that they take. And even if it's a crime of passion where afterwards someone says, well, I just snapped, the fact that they don't immediately reveal all to everybody, which they never do in books or you wouldn't have a book, right. um, is because 
they have some sort of moral code or justification that says, well, nothing good's going to come of confessing, so I'm going to lie from here on out. And right. that also creates an important tension about, well, why are you doing that? And is that ever justified? Right, right. And it's also interesting that um, you, through a legal thriller, can explore the various layers of truth, depending on the parameters you've set up inside your own story, isn't it? Yes. I mean, one of the things that um, I'm a practicing lawyer, and so one of the things that really guides me in my writing is that in my legal practice, um, you know, I always say to people, you wouldn't really have a lawsuit if everybody was telling the truth, right? Because you'd know right. what was And which is not to say that somebody's perjuring themselves, but they just have a different view of the truth. And then right. sometimes they really are just perjuring themselves because, you know, they're advancing some other interests that they deem more important than fidelity to the truth. Right, exactly right. And it was, um, you know, that mindset reminds me of an interesting documentary I saw a while back about Robert Evans. The kid stays in the picture. And he was very careful in the middle of that documentary to say, this is the truth as I remember it. I'm not right and they're not wrong. We all remember the truth differently and it serves us all differently. And I think I've always said, that was a fascinating aspect. Yeah, I think that, um, I think that's right. I think that, you know, the old um, cliche that you're entitled to opinions but not your own facts gets a little muddled because what your facts are often are guided by your opinions or your self-interest or um, other factors that, you know, an objective um, viewer might say, well, that isn't exactly what happened. Right, exactly right. And as the reader, we, depending on who the narrator is, we do have an idea of what actually happened. And the fun is seeing how it's spun in the course of the story. That's right. I mean, in, in my book, you have two um, main characters in, in Matt and Vanessa. And there's a line that, unfortunately, I don't remember verbatim, but it's one of the lines that I like the best in the book, which is when Vanessa is sworn in as a witness, she makes the point of saying, I'm not going to tell the truth at trial. And it's not because I don't want to. It's because how can there be a truth between lovers when you always have a different perspective than they do about what happened? Mm. And then when you're involved in a litigation, well, you always have a different perspective than the other side or you wouldn't be involved in the litigation. So what does it even mean to tell the truth other than telling the best truth for your side and and that's what it ends up being exactly right and and by delving into the world you know so well as uh, uh, of legal thrillers it gives you a lot of room to play with i remember when i first got my very first book deal i figured uh the, the publisher at the time told me you don't need to hire a lawyer because it's just going to be a boilerplated agreement there's not much wiggle room it's it's pretty straightforward you don't need a lawyer and since I grew up in New York City and lived there my whole life, I said, when someone tells me I don't need a lawyer, the first thing I do, I get a lawyer. And yep, that's good <laughs> well, and that's what I, I brought it to a lawyer. And he said, yeah, there's no such thing as a boilerplate agreement. And he said, their job is to protect them. My job is to protect you. And that sets up an awful lot of possibilities. And I think that's why the legal thriller has endured for so long. 
Um, you know, I've written a lot of thrillers, I've written crime novels, and I've written westerns. And in going through those three genres or any genre, it, it reminds me of the limitations of, of any genre we choose. Like if you, a lot of people love submarine movies, but they're basically the same premise. There's only a few things that can change within it. Um, with Westerns, kind of the same thing. I was wondering about how you approach writing a legal thriller um, and, and make sure that it doesn't uh, necessarily follow all the tropes that are in that genre. Well, one of the things I try to do is be accurate as to the legal procedures. Um, and so um, I, I could show you. My, my mm. friend just joined us in this call. We have a new puppy. <laughs> <laughs> He's obviously very interested in this. Um, He's beautiful. Um, so one of the things that I try to do is make sure that it's accurate. And I think that does change a lot of the tropes because you don't have a situation where um, hearsay is admitted, for example. Um, right. And one of the things that is involved in my books is a situation where you're trying to focus on not only the truth, but how is this gonna be submitted into evidence? And I right. think that's important. And also, you know, justice doesn't always prevail in my books and people don't tell the truth under oath. And those are tropes that I think um, you often see in legal thrillers that aren't fair. And like I said, right. the liars aren't venal always, they just have a different recollection um, or they're lying to achieve some greater purpose. And right. one of the things that I find fascinating about the law that isn't often explored is, though, is that people always think that the legal system is a search for truth and that's a cliche. Mm -hmm. But there are rules imposed in the legal system that often will block you from the truth because there are other principles that are deemed more important. Sorry, my dog. Um, and as a result, you don't often get to the truth because evidence might not be admissible or right. um, because there's a privilege applied and someone says, well, it's more important that the communications with your spouse be private than that we get to the truth. And I think those interlays also are important in terms of making your legal thriller realistic and helping enrich the experience of the reader because you're simultaneously the lawyers and the judge and the parties and the jury when you're reading a legal thriller. And I find that right. just fascinating. Right, yeah, I do too. And especially because I'll admit it, I'm, I, I love a lot a good true crime documentary and I've seen enough of the uh, defense attorneys to say uh, in their interviews, that the truth is one thing, but a, a case and before a judge and a jury is often just as much about process and about rules as it is about anything else. And I've always I found that fascinating as well. And that gives you a lot of, um, I would imagine, gives you a lot of um, room to craft a compelling story. Yes, um, I think <laughs> the that dog is very. Very happy to be there with you. Yes, I think that um, a, a career in media is probably something that will uh, appeal to hit her at some point. Um, but yes, I think that that's exactly right, that um, 
as a lawyer, you're always thinking about how is this going to be presented? Um, how do I get it into evidence? And is it going to be, you know, are the atmospherics of it going to work? Because sometimes, right. you know, your client will say, you know, X, Y, Z, and you're like, okay, that's the only way I can get into evidence is if my client says it, but my client comes with a lot of baggage and he's going to say a lot of other things or just look a certain way that I think is going to turn the jury off. And then you have to make a decision about is that truth worth the other truth of your client's perception? Right, exactly right. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's not as clear cut as just presenting a case and letting the chips fall where we hope they will. It's, um, it, it's much more involved than that. Just like police work is much more involved than NCIS or the show, the FBI's, uh, the various uh, offshoots of that portray it to be. Um, I was wondering, this book is getting a lot of attention for a lot of good reasons. And you've said that you've got nine other books out there. How about telling us a little bit about how you're, you've evolved as a writer from the first legal thriller that you published all the way up to this one. How has that experience prepared you for your latest work? So I think that as I've, as I've written more and more books, I'm more conscious about a lot of things in the writing process that I used to take for granted. For example, one of the things that I'm, I focus on a lot is not just the main characters, but all of the characters to make sure that their motivations ring true. Right. Uh, and you know, I think that if I had criticisms of my own writing in my earlier books, it would be that they were very protagonist centered. Um, mm -hmm. I've also gotten, I think, um, good at eliminating anything that I don't think either advances the plot or the character development. And right. so it isn't by coincidence that my first book is my longest book because I think I just wasn't as good an editor as I am today. Um, yeah, that's understandable. And beyond that, I, I think that the, the dialogue is sharper. You know, I think, you know, and, and I'll be honest, people do write to me and say that my first book was their favorite. And so, mm -hmm. it, and that always makes me happy, but also makes me think, well, I'd like to think that I'm getting better. <laughs> um, so it's a mixed reaction, but I'm hoping that people are going to think that um, Love, Betrayal, Murder is my best, and then that'll solve that problem until the next book comes out. <laughs> well, it's true, because I mean, often the first book is the most pure, and it's often the, the least jaded, because you, you haven't had the experience of publishing uh, when you wrote it. But, uh, and it's also, too, the, it's often the first uh, introduction that our audience has to us, and they form a certain uh, attachment to that work, which is, uh, which is great, you know, but you're right. An artist always wants their latest work to be the highlight. But if that's a gateway, if you will, for them to read the rest of your stuff, that's great too. Yep. Yeah. No, I, people say, what's your favorite book? And it's not even a line for me. It's always true. It's the one I'm working on now because mm -hmm. I have the hope that it's going to be perfect. And when it's done, I have the realization of, well, it wasn't perfect, right? These are things that might've been better and it is what it is. But while I'm writing it, I'm thinking, oh no, this is gonna be the one that's perfect. Right, exactly right. Yeah, and that's the thing too. Earlier you were talking about 
how you couldn't recall a certain uh, scene in, in your latest book, Love, the Trail, Murder. And uh, I, I've had the same thing when I'm talking to people, writers and readers about my stuff. And it's always the readers who say, what do you mean you can't remember that? You wrote it. Is it don't, don't you remember it? And I said, you have no idea. That was, yeah, it's out now, but that's three books ago or two books ago. I'm onto something else. And uh, sometimes I'm going to get the details right. And it's always a kick when a reader corrects me about a fact that happened in one of my books. I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I always, um, it, 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 it warms my heart because what it means is that they have a connection to the work that's immediate because they just put down the book. And my connection to the work is not even when the book came out, obviously, right? But when I stopped right. writing it, which is often a year before it comes out. So even with regard to Love, Betrayal, Murder, you know, it came out yesterday. And so I'm getting immediate feedback from people who are minutes removed from the story. And, and I'm more removed than that, even though <laughs> I lived with it for far longer. Right, right, exactly right. And, and I sense that you're the kind of writer who appreciates receiving that kind of feedback from people and your audience. Yeah, I, I include my email in the acknowledgement of the book and I encourage readers to reach out to me. Um, right. And, you know, it's obviously very gratifying when they say I really love the book. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes they'll point out a factual error and sometimes they'll tell me, you know, this is what didn't sit well with me. And, right. you know, consider all those viewpoints because I'm a firm believer that, you know, once the book's out there, the story's in their hands. And one right. of the things that I find interesting is people will ask me about things that are not on the page. Um, mm -hmm. And to me, I have a point of view, but if it's really not on the page, then I think a reader's point of view is just as valid as mine. And exactly if I right. that, then you can assume a happily ever um, after ending because you know the ending is up to you. And I have my own view about what happens the next day, but mm -hmm. if it's not foreshadowed and it's not written about, well, then it's up for debate. You know, until exactly somebody- Exactly right. Right, right, exactly, exactly. That's the, that's the important part. And when we were talking before about tropes, it was great that we did not use the dreaded phrase transcend the genre because I think that was overused a couple of years ago. And also you're writing in a particular genre and not every writer necessarily wants to transcend it, but they just want to be able to have their own unique spin on it. Yeah. And it sounds like you've done that. Actually, um, just in the lead up to this book about transcending the genre, because it's such a cliche, but in right. my view, it doesn't mean the book's better than the genre, you know, because right. my favorite legal thriller is um, Presumed Innocent. And I wouldn't say that transcends the genre because it is the genre, um, mm -hmm. but it's still, in my view, the best of that genre and one of the best books of any genre. You know, when I think about transcends the genre, I think about, does it speak to things other than the genre? And you could do right. that well or poorly. Um, so I don't equate it as better than, but just different than, or in addition to the genre. Right. And I know that you just mentioned Presumed Innocent as your favorite book. 
I'm also a huge movie fan. And I was wondering, what is your favorite legal thriller movie? Is it Presumed Innocent or another one? I, I do like Presumed Innocent, um, though I often felt that the movie did a disservice to the book. And not just mm -hmm. in the way that the books are always better than the movie, but in the fact that I think it, it fundamentally changed the book in a way that I didn't like. Um, right. I recently saw William Landy's um, Defending Jacob on Apple. Um, oh, right. I thought that was a great book and a great movie. You know, one of the things that I think is so interesting now with streaming services is I think it's very difficult to make a three to 400 page book that you spend eight hours reading into right. a 90 movie, but you right. can make it into an eight to 10 hour miniseries. And mm -hmm. so I think the best legal um, genres, legal um, movies are going to be streaming shows. So like Defending Jacob, I thought was very good. Um, I I'm sure that there are others that just escape me right now, but mm -hmm. that to me is the most fascinating. Partly because, you know, when you're actually involved in a legal case, it's a grueling process. Yes, and it is. I'm from so much happens at night and, you know, reevaluating after the testimony. And, you know, in law and order, the legal case is 30 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. <laughs> and it just doesn't capture that feeling um, of, you know, waking up and having to go back to court day in after day in. So, that's why I think that given more time to, to tell the story is always gonna be better. Right, and you're right about streaming too. I just saw a uh, doc, uh, not a documentary, I saw the documentary too, but I also saw the, um, on the, one of the streaming services that Jennifer Garner played the um, a German woman who was trying to start all of her clubs, all of these exclusive clubs, and she built all of Wall Street. I can't remember the name of it now, but it was fascinating and it did show her in prison. It showed the drudgery of, of the, the case that her attorney was presenting for her. And you're right, the streaming does allow you to get into the depths of, of what, that, uh, what that life is and what that endeavor is. Yeah, and, uh, I think you know, it's the future of um, you know, books to visual is gonna be streaming because mm -hmm. Um, you can tell a much more nuanced story. And I think the criticism of, you know, the book is better than the movie is always because of the constraints of, you know, a 90 minute format. You got to eliminate um, side plots and character motivations and really just tell action. And, and you're able to be much subtler in a streaming platform. Right. Uh, for me, two of my favorite movies are uh, legal thrillers are uh, a bit old uh, by now, but one is The Verdict and the other one was one of my all-time favorite movies, Inherit the Wind. That was a, a fantastic scene. I know it was highly dramatized, but two great actors like Spencer Tracy and Frederick March hammering at each other in front of a courtroom, fantastic stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the great legal thrillers ever is um, To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Yes. So, um, you know, I think that there's, um, um, you know, witness for the prosecution. I mean, there's a lot of classic um, movies that do it very, very well. Yes, yes, they do. And, and I'm hoping that uh, we continue to see that uh, with the onset of streaming becoming more popular all the time.
Um, I was wondering, what are you working on now and what's next for you in your writing career? So um, it's my goal to put out a book a year, which I've been okay. pretty close to doing over the last decade. Uh, my mm -hmm. first book came out in 2011 and this is my 10th book and it's 2023. So to do that kind of productivity, I'm always one book ahead. And so my goal is on publication day for Love, Betrayal, Murder, I submitted the next book to the publisher, which will hopefully come out in 2024. And okay. the day after I submit that book to the publisher, I go to the computer and write untitled and begin writing what hopefully will be the book in 2025. So I'm very excited about the next book, which is not a legal thriller, but still a murder mystery, um, okay. but doesn't involve courtroom scenes. Um, and, you know, it, I'm in that strange netherworld where I love it and nobody else has read it. So I don't know if, <laughs> if it's as good as I think it is, but I'm hoping. Well, at this point, you've definitely developed a, uh, a good sense of what's good and, and your own talent. So I'm sure it's going to be great. Do you envision yourself writing a series or I know you've written a lot of standalones. Uh, you've got experience in both. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer standalones? I do prefer standalones. So I've written one series and I know that um, readers enjoy it and they like the continuity. For me, it's a little bit difficult because I, I like the character driven part of the story. Mm -hmm. And although some people write great series and, and I read series and, you know, I like them as much as the next person, but I think that your characters don't have the same arc in a series because they have to come back and be familiar in the next book too. So right. my, my series, which is the Broden Legal series, the first two books of that series take place one right after the other. And the third book in that series really involves entirely different character. So the first two books involve Ella Broden and the last book, The Best Friend involves her father. Um, mm. And so in that way, it's a series, but um, many, many of my readers read them in the wrong order and, um, and don't seem to care. And to me, that's the mark of a good series is you don't have to read it from start to finish, um, though preferable if you do. But um, I have lots of readers who email me after reading the third book and say, I'd really like to know more about his daughter and what happened to her. And then I'm able right. to say, you're in luck because there are two books about that. Right, right. Well, that's, uh, and, and that's the, the benefit and the curse of writing a series. You are, you know, you get people who like it, but then you're wedded to that timeline and you have to clean it up a little bit as you, you move along. So I know that um, this book, Love, Betrayal, and Murder, is getting a lot of play, and I think it's going to be quite successful for you. Um, how can people continue to follow you on social media and your website to keep up with what's going on in your career? So I am blessed with a not very common name. And so if you just Google <laughs> me, you'll find all my social media. And if you send me an email, and like I said, um, it's in the acknowledgements of the book, but it's adam at adammitzner.com. So also not a, 
a difficult one. Um, I will respond to you and um, keep you updated with my, my work. Fantastic. Well, that sounds like it's a, a great place for people to be able to follow you. And I thank you for taking the time to talk with me and my audience today. I really appreciate it, Adam. My pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Oh, no problem at all. And everyone, this has been another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Tune in next time, everyone. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terrence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.